When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. For a long time, I was not aware that I lived on a narrow ledge on top of a very high wall. I thought mistakenly that I lived on an endless flat canvas and that I was illustrating and adding color where I wanted, creating my own design. But a wind that began very far away, I don't know when or where, was blowing toward me, invisible and unprovoked. Pray, live well or not, sin, whatever. It's indifferent. Nothing that I did or thought created it. The wind did not exist because of me, and one day it arrived where I was. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Daniel P. Shapiro, author of the heartfelt memoir, The Thin Ledge, a husband's memoir of love, trauma, and unexpected circumstances. In his preface to the book, Daniel writes that he wanted to publish his memoir for many reasons, mostly because he hopes it will be useful to those who are faced with a similar situation. His wife, after two brain bleeds caused by a venous malformation, was fundamentally damaged. But she continued to live for many years, needing constant care and attention. Writing this memoir while raising three young children and working in a demanding profession helped him survive. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Glee. Thank you for having me here. I usually ask authors how they came to write the book we're about to discuss, but I know you started journaling when your wife experienced that first brain bleed. Can you say more about how you decided to write and publish your most personal thoughts as a memoir? Sure. I, I uh, was living an experience that was, I found very challenging and extreme. Um, and I, I thought that the best way, actually, I thought is probably not the right way to characterize it. I wound up using writing, which I've always gravitated to and I've always done professionally as a lawyer. Um, I, I used writing to help me gather up and try to understand the experiences that I was having. I wasn't writing 
uh, for publication or to share with anybody, actually. It was more of a way to um, put down as just this torrent of thoughts and challenges and emotions and maybe give them some more careful thought and reflection and maybe organize my thinking a little bit. And over time, um, it came to be something uh, bigger than that, but I, I didn't anticipate it as a book uh, when I started writing. It was more of an exercise for me and for my mental health and, and just as a way of living my life. Mm. You didn't hold back, even when you weren't proud of how you were responding to what was happening. Can you say more about how you felt about your own responses to the situation? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think some of the responses uh, were good and some of the responses were not. And when I say good, I mean, some of my behavior over this you know, 15 plus year time period, I am quite proud of. I, I, I love the relationship that grew out of these experiences that I now have with my children, for example. Um, and then there were other things that I did along the way that were, that I'm not proud of, that were human. I don't punish myself for them, but I certainly when I look at them then and now, um, it, it, they're a little too human maybe. And, and, you know, everybody is a little bit fallen and for sure I'm in that category. And so I tried to capture all of it so that it would be useful to me and ultimately authentic, um, and useful to other people. Um, one of the things that I found in going through the experience that I did is that there really were not a lot of things written out there that I could find that were real honest treatments of what this human experience was. There, there's a Joan Didion book um, that got sort of close, but she really wasn't writing about the same thing. Um, and so that really wasn't quite on the mark. And um, I thought, I'll just sit down and, and write what's happening and write how I'm feeling and what I'm doing. And um, let's see where it goes. Every single reader is probably going to feel the same jolt in their heart that I did when, when reading about how much you loved your wife and how, how it felt not to be able to do anything while she was hooked up with tubes. So my question is, if you could reach across time and give yourself advice, what would it be? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I think that... I would suspend judgment. Um, you know, part of what I write about and part of what I lived was what happens to your value system and your moral compass when you're really stretched by circumstances? How do you deal with that? And I think there is a sort of a natural tendency to judge your conduct, which I think we all do, um, through your own moral lens. And, and that doesn't fit very well uh, all the time when you are in an extreme circumstance. And so what I would say is, and what I discuss in the book, I think pretty extensively, is do your best, keep your wits about you, 
but don't judge yourself so much as you're doing your best. Sometimes you'll fail and you have to be able to, if you're going to survive something really tough, you have to be able to experience the failures and move forward. Mm, Good advice. You write that you didn't realize that you'd missed signs and clues that the doctors didn't expect Susan to live after her brain began malfunctioning. Why didn't you believe when the doctors told you that she wasn't conscious and didn't experience what was happening to her? I think what happened to me was that my ability to absorb information and understand it maxed out. And I, and I wasn't able to effectively do that when the news got um, too difficult for me to manage. And, and so what I learned was really interesting and distressing at the same time. And that is there are limits to what at least I am able to absorb and understand. And you can be in a circumstance, you can be in an experience that exceeds your capacity to be a, a, a critical thinker. And you just become, uh, you know, uh, one of the pieces on the board that are moving around, but um, your skills that you usually rely on, that I rely on uh, to comprehend and process and think analytically, I found that there's certain times they just left me. They weren't available. I couldn't use them. They weren't there. And, uh, you know, that was something I had not experienced before. And it was, it was distressing and interesting. Mm. I was fascinated by how you reacted to the friend who asked if the doctors had discussed turning Susan's ventilator off. You wrote, quote, in that instant, she made herself irrelevant. I spent no further thought or feeling in her direction. I said something polite but distant, and she knew that she had stepped outside and I had closed and locked the door behind her. That was about as, um, that was pretty strong language. Can you say more? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that this um, brought out for me was seeing the way not only I responded to a, a difficult really unhappy uh, circumstance, but to see how other people around me did. And you get to, they get to know you because they see what you're doing and how you're responding. And you get to know them because you see how they're supporting you or not supporting Susan or not. Um, Just sort of what, I mean, maybe it is what one facet of what people call character. And you, I think you get to know somebody better when you're sort of struggling through um, something hard. And I, that was a moment when I got to know somebody a little bit better than I did. Um, not, by the way, not in a negative way. I, I think, you know, the way I have always thought about that person didn't change for the worse because of that experience. I mean, I, I think she was being empathetic and trying to be thoughtful and caring. Um, and I just wasn't able to accommodate what she was saying because I, I didn't have the emotional energy to do it. 
Um, it didn't make her wrong by any means. And I, I didn't judge her harshly for it. I just couldn't listen. Wow. I thought that meant you closed the door on her, not my friend anymore, kind of a thing. So no, I, in oh. fact, I, she, she's still a friend. I, I closed the door on her in terms of her being input for me to manage what was happening in that moment. I, I couldn't, I couldn't listen to what she was saying. Uh-huh. I remember uh, being shocked and irritated by some of the responses I got from people after I was diagnosed with cancer. And they people asked invasive questions or gave suggestions for, you know, changing my diet or taking supplement, whatever, none of which had any scientific validity. You don't mention it a lot, but did it happen? I don't. If it did, I don't remember it. I don't think if it did, I don't think it was all that important to me. And I think that <clears throat> unlike cancer, which is, I thank goodness I've never experienced, and I'm sorry that you have. Unlike that, it, it isn't what happened to Susan and what we were going through wasn't a common thing. I mean, people didn't really think, well, I've thought about, I've thought about this. I've thought about, you know, a traumatic brain injury when you're 40 years old through a brain hemorrhage. Nobody had thought about that. Nobody had seen it. It's just not a common, at least the people that I knew and spent time with. And, and so nobody really had anything that they thought through and they had subscribed to as a way of treating it or handling it. Or So I think what um, you were exposed to, which I can imagine would be enormously irritating, um, that that was not part of, that wasn't on the menu for me because it, what, what I was dealing with was sort of exotic and nobody really, they were, people were just trying to understand it. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about how listening to music sometimes helped you get in touch with your feelings, even now, feelings that you had about Susan and, and then you remember how she was before the brain bleeds? Yeah, that's a that's a crazy thing. I And your, your questions are terrific because you're sort of, you're sort of diagramming in, in a way what the emotional experience was. I think what happened was um, that when I really couldn't access my emotional part because it was just too hard, I think what I found is that I just couldn't turn that on and off when I wanted to. So I built walls for myself, I think, and shut the emotional pieces into their own cages in certain parts of my head so that I could function and live my life. Um, and ultimately that didn't even sustain me in the end. But um, when I wanted to remember or I wanted to get in touch with a feeling, I couldn't just flip a switch and do it. And so what I found, although I'm not sure I've ever explained it this way before, in fact, I'm sure I have not explained it this way before, Um, what I found was that music made that connection for me. It sort of bridged over the, the barrier that I had created just so I could live day to day. And it would, it would reach me on a different level. It's, it's interesting. I, I I have a little granddaughter, one-year-old granddaughter, and I was telling my daughter that she, that my, my granddaughter has this appreciation for music that is innate. I mean, she just, I, and I suppose all kids do. I don't, I don't know, but I'm watching my granddaughter and we put music on 
And she immediately pays attention to it and sort of gets into it and understands the beat, moves her head. And, and I think music is sort of a magical thing that way. I think it, it reaches us um, in a way that sort of nothing else does. And I certainly found that to be true. What's the top song that brings you back to those year, that year or those days? Yeah, I, I think probably um, the Eagles, you know, people are going to wince at that because the Eagles get banged around by critics. <laughs> but I, the truth is that it was either Led Zeppelin or the Eagles, one of them. And I, I'm not sure I could tell you as I'm sitting here right now, but the Eagles soundtrack is sort of the, the background for that part of my life, I guess. Come on. We all loved them back then. <laughs> I okay. did. Um, I loved your description of helping your daughter tame her curly hair during those middle school years. And I wondered how it was to talk to your children about their experience. Also, what, what are their responses to your publishing this very personal memoir about their mother? Um, I would not have published this if my kids hadn't read it and given me the go ahead. I, I just wouldn't have done it. Um, they were and have been incredibly supportive uh, of the book and of me. And we just have what I, I think, and I'm not going to apologize for it, even though every father probably thinks the same thing. I think we have a very special bond and, and relationship um, that was created by all this adversity. and. Um, they read what I wrote and I, I think it resonated with them or at least they were okay with it. Um, I think the other part of your question was, did I talk to my kids, I suppose, as this was going along? And the answer is about certain pieces of it. Yes. I mean, I, I tried to keep them current about their mother's condition and what was going to happen to the extent we knew. Um, and so I was always very honest with them about that because I didn't want them to be misled or surprised. Um, they had to be emotionally prepared for what their, what was gonna um, show up in their life. And I wanted to make sure that I was doing what I could to give them a chance to prepare. And so we, we talked about those things um, the rest of it is a little, to be frank, a little blurry to me. I, I'm sure we did talk, and I, they're three kids. They're all three very different. Um, I do talk in the book about each of them um, and, and the personalities that I, I was dealing with um, and uh, helping to form. And uh, each of them were, I, I'm sure they were different conversations with all three of them. Hmm. What about friends and family? Can you talk about how they've reacted to the book? Um, really well. I mean, if 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 people are reacting, I, I'm sure there are people who have read this who don't, and this is going to just sound terrible, but I, I, it's just the truth. I'm sure there are people who have read this who, who don't have glowing things to say about it, but that's not what I'm hearing. So... I, people must have, have more discretion than that. So everybody thinks this is sort of brutally honest and that gives it value and that gives it um, sort of an earnestness that makes it 
if nothing else, sort of an interesting human study or study of a human. And I think that's really, um, that winds up being something that seems to have an audience. I mean, I, the comment that I get most often is uh, that people found it gripping and couldn't put it down, literally. That's what people say to me, true or not, that's what they say. Um, and that they really appreciate the writing, that the writing is, is, um, is you know, um, beautiful is the word that they use to me. And you'll forgive me for having to repeat it, but that's what they're telling me. It, it absolutely was absolutely beautiful. And I read it in one sitting and an afternoon. So I agree with all of them. Anyway, we have the um, wonderful author and editor S.L. Weisenberg in common. You thank her in your acknowledgments. And in fact, she's the friend who told me that I had to read your memoir. Can you say something about how Sandy helped you pull over 20 years of journaling into this gorgeous piece of writing? um, Sandy uh, is exactly the kind of person um, who I find irreplaceable. I mean, she is really smart really honest, very direct, sort of no nonsense. I, I, I think anybody who has the opportunity to have Sandy teach them about writing or edit their work um, is, uh, is really quite fortunate. I think she's just, she's just um, a very talented person. My favorite book of hers is Adventures of Cancer Bitch. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Um, so Daniel, what are you writing about these days? And might there be another book in the near future? Yeah, I'm working on another book. Um, I'm going to, I don't really have anything more in the memoir category to write, but there is some fiction that I want to write. I, I find, um, that the whole debate in the country right now about race relations to be fascinating. I, I don't, find it to be quite as honest as it needs to be in order to make progress. Um, and I think fiction may be a way to have a conversation about that, that, you know, you just can't, you just can't do in a, um, in a nonfiction context. So I, I, I think exploring um, the way that human beings are actually dealing and have actually dealt with these difficult social issues. Um, I think that, that will be interesting, and that's uh, that's what I'm writing about. I'm just wondering if it's also set in Chicago. Um, it is. Uh, it, it's set in Chicago, and I, I find that having spent almost 40 years in law firms, um, that law firms are particularly well, not maybe not particularly, but certainly among the institutions in our community where there is a lot of power uh, and uh, really challenged by dealing with race issues. All the issues that are on the table right now play out in law firms in a way that uh, have been dealt with, I think it's fair to say, with very mixed success. And and not for lack of trying, not for lack of uh, good intentions and a lot of sincere people, but it's just very challenging. and. I think all of it is sort of grist for the mill. I think it's it, it's pretty interesting stuff to explore. 
I am going to look forward to hearing about it when it comes out. Thank you so much, Daniel Shapiro, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Daniel P. Shapiro about his memoir, The Thin Ledge, a husband's memoir of love, trauma, and unexpected circumstances. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.